Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be here with you. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 15 together as we prepare to look at the Word of God. Thanks, Linda. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered among themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Father, I pray that you would add your understanding, your wisdom to this reading. I pray that as we look into it together, that your Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth and will speak to us, each of us, what it is that we need to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now we come to that moment in the service that uh, all the introverts in the room take the rest of the day to recover from. I just want you to take 30 seconds and turn around and say hi to each other. And if you don't want to say anything, just give each other a high five. That's okay. 
All right, thank you. Well, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Tim Horman. I'm the senior minister here at One, and we are in the second week of a short two-part series that we're doing on Jesus' most important, one of Jesus' most important parables, the parable of the prodigal son, as you would know it, which we've just read together. Now, let me just quickly recap the context of this parable so that we can uh, move into the second part of it this morning. Uh, the context is that the background of the parable, what's going on in the background of this moment, is that all throughout Jesus' ministry, we see the sinners and the tax collectors, the unclean and the unrighteous, flocking to Jesus. And Jesus, as we know, didn't just tolerate them, but He welcomed them. The passage tells us He welcomed the sinners and the tax collectors, the unrighteous, the unworthy, the unclean. He welcomed them around them, around Him. He loved them, and He even enjoyed their company. Jesus was treating the sinners, prostitutes, the sick and unworthy as though they were His friends, because they were. But as far as the religious leaders were concerned, the scribes and the Pharisees, that was a horrifying thing for any self-respecting Jewish person, let alone a teacher or a rabbi to do, a horrifying thing. And what is more, we're told, Jesus isn't just welcoming them around Him, He is eating with them. He's sitting down at the same table and sharing food with them. And as we said last week, in that culture, to eat a meal with another person was a sacred act an act signifying relationship and equality. So by eating with them, Jesus was accepting these sinners and tax collectors with open arms, and the scribes and the Pharisees are horrified. In their minds, this is offensive to the holiness of God. So they said in disgust, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Can you believe it? He eats with them. They're essentially saying, shame on you, Jesus. How dare you? How could you? This is gross. This is offensive to the holiness of God. This is something a rabbi should never do. So how does Jesus respond to this criticism? Jesus responds by telling them a story, this story in Luke chapter 15. And if Jesus were trying to diffuse the tension here, you know, trying to calm the Pharisees down a little bit, this was definitely not the kind of story you would tell. Jesus is throwing petrol on a bonfire in this story, or he's lighting a match in a room full of dynamite. By telling this story, Jesus is basically writing his death sentence. Why? Because in this story, Jesus is clearly painting a picture of what God is like, and he's effectively telling the religious leaders, the way that you guys understand God is completely wrong. You've got it completely backwards. You have missed the point. And what is God the Father like, according to Jesus? Well, let's take a look. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons, two sons. Now, last week, we focused on the younger of those two sons, the so-called prodigal son. And today, we're going to focus on the older son, the older brother. And I think, I have a feeling that many of us will recognize him, because churches are full of older sons. In many respects, the older son is the most relevant of the two to us, particularly if we've been Christians for a while. And as we said last week, the, the subject of the story is not the son or either of the two sons, but the father. The father is the subject of this parable. In fact, Jesus tells us this right at the beginning, there was a man, 
who had two sons. The man is the subject of the story. Uh, that's why this parable should not be called the prodigal son, but the prodigal father, or even the shameful father, as some have suggested. Because for the Pharisees listening to this story, the actions of the father would have been outrageously shameful and offensive. He is the prodigal in this story. See, the way that Jesus describes the action of, of the father would have outraged the religious leaders, yet for the ordinary people, the sinners, the tax collectors, the those who are desperate to discover a God who truly sees them and cares for them and wants to help them. For those people, this story would have left them weeping for joy. So the Pharisees and the tax collectors might be gnashing their teeth, but the rest of the folks listening to this story would have been weeping for joy. In the first half of the parable, Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees that the God whose reputation they are so zealous to protect is in fact the God who joyfully embraces repentant sinners and even throws parties for them when they come home. This is the God who is even prepared, as we saw last week, to ruin his reputation in order to welcome home his lost sons and daughters. Everything the Father does in this story is scandalous and offensive. As Daryl Johnson says, Jesus reveals here a waiting, longing, suffering, running, sinner-embracing, sinner-kissing, sinner-welcoming God who's even prepared to get down in the dirt with us, to allow himself be stained with our filth and our mistakes and our failures. And so if the first part of the parable upset the religious leaders, it was the second half of this parable that got Jesus crucified because now Jesus is taking aim at them. Now he's talking about them. Now he's holding up a mirror for them to have a look at in the character of the oldest son. And so as we look at the second part of this story, um, where do we find the oldest son? Where is he? What's he doing? Well, Luke 15, 25 tells us now the, the oldest son was in the field. So he's out in the farm, he's working. Of course that's what he's doing. Of course, the older son is going to be out in the field working hard. What else would he be doing? Now, my guess is that along with the religious leaders of the first century, the older son then represents most of us in this room. We've not run off to a far country uh, and squandered everything we have on loose living. You know, we've sought to be faithful and obedient and good. We've tried our hardest to do what is right, to do our best, to reach our potential to make something of ourselves. We've worked really hard to do what is right and build a life. Are you with me? Can you say an amen? <laughs> but what we discover in the second half of Jesus' parable is that although the older son doesn't go off to a far country and, and squander his wealth, he too, he too breaks his father's heart. Maybe actually even more profoundly than the younger son. In this story, we discover that there are two kinds of sinners. There's law-breaking sinners, and there's law-keeping sinners. Both are lost, and both are in need of grace. In the younger brother, Jesus gives us a picture of sin that's pretty traditional, right? Any religious person, well, probably any person really, could look at that and say, yep, that's sin. Squandering your wealth on prostitutes, drunkenness, insulting your parents, kids, I hope you're listening to that, self-indulgence, Wasted, I 
shouldn't do that, I'm sorry. Wasted potential, addiction, drugs, loose living. Anyone in this room and just about anyone in the world would say, yeah, okay, that's probably a good definition of sin. But with the older brother, Jesus turns the tables. Because what you get in the second act, what you start to realize is that both sons are sinners, both have broken their father's heart. Both of them, it turns out, wanted their father's wealth, their father's stuff, but they didn't really want the father. As Tim Keller says, both of them used the father to get what they actually wanted, what they really loved. They didn't love the father, they used the father to get status or wealth or personal fulfillment. One of them did it by being very, very good, and the other did it by being very, very bad. But they are both lost. The bad one is lost in his badness. The good one is lost in his goodness. In the end, it's the bad son that's saved, presumably, and the good son that's lost. And shockingly, that goes against what anyone has ever believed about salvation. Just let that sink in for a minute. And it gets worse. The good son is not lost in spite of his goodness, he's lost because of it. He, never, he says himself, here's the reason I won't go into the feast, Dad. Here's why I'm not coming in, Dad. It's because I have never disobeyed you. I have slaved for you my whole life. And what have you ever done for me? That's the religious spirit right there. That's the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not his sins keeping him from the Father, because, but because he's proud of his goodness. He's proud of his obedience. It's not his disobedience keeping him from the Father. Ironically, it's because he believes his goodness should have earned him something, should have given him an advantage over those who are less deserving. Listen, let me say that again. The older brother thinks that his good behavior should give him an advantage over those who are less deserving, aka the younger brother. What do we call that today? We call that entitlement. He's angry because the younger son is being treated in a way that he does not deserve, that he has not earned. And yet here I am and I've earned this, father, I've earned this. And what are you doing for the younger son? welcoming him home, undeserved. It's not fair. Now remember, the younger son hopes he might be able to earn a place in the father's house by working for it. That's part of his prayer, right? Or his speech of repentance. Just make me one of your hired servants. I'll earn my way back into the family. Tragically, the older son has been living that way his whole life. His whole life. Thinking that his status in the family is something he's got to work for, that he has to earn by his good works. Tim Keller says something really profound here. I'm just paraphrasing uh, from one of his talks on this. And he says that what we have here in front of us are the two basic ways human beings try to make the world right, try to put themselves right and connect with God. The first one is moral conformity, and the second one is self-discovery or as we might term it these days, expressive individualism, self-discovery. So, you know, you can see how these two options map onto all kinds of other categories. You might say another way of talking about this is the conservatives and the progressives. In moral conformity, people say, I'm not going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to be good. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make something of my life. 
With self-discovery or expressive individualism, people say, no, I'm going to decide what's right or wrong for me. I'm going to go out and discover my own truth and, and live as I want to live. I'm going to find my true self and discover my own spiritual path, right? Each side says, this is the way you make the world a better place. Each side says, this is the way that you discover happiness. But Jesus says, you're both wrong. You're both lost. You're both making the world a terrible place, just in very different ways. The elder brothers of this world divide the, the world in two. They say the good people are in and the bad people are out. But the younger brothers do the same. They divide the world in two. They say that the open-minded, affirming, and progressive people are in, and the bigoted, judgmental, and closed-minded people are out. Jesus says, it's neither. He says, it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. It's the people who know they're not good and are open-minded enough to realize that they need the grace of God and the people who point the finger and think they're on the right side of the divide, they discover that they're the ones who are out. Uh, what does James say? God resists the? God resists the? Proud, but gives grace to the? The humble. And what do proud people do? They draw lines around who's in and who's out. And what do humble people do? They cry out to them uh, and lean on the mercy of God. So friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion or irreligion, it's not morality or immorality, it's not moralism or relativism, it's not conservatism or progressivism, it's off the scales, it's not halfway in the middle, it's something else completely, and we should never forget that. The older son comes home from the field where he has been diligently carrying out his responsibilities. He's been working all day, and then he hears music and celebration coming from the house. So, confused, he asks one of the servants what's going on, and the servant tells him the good news, or what should have been good news. Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we're celebrating, we're having a party for him. And what is the response of the elder brother? They're Elder brother, Jesus tells us, becomes what? Is he happy about this? No, he becomes angry, furious. Why angry? Because the younger son who has shamed the name of the father and the family and the village is obviously not being punished. He's not being punished. Worse, not only is he not being punished, the father's throwing a party for him. The oldest son can barely believe what he is hearing. He can barely, like something in his brain has just broken. His mind has blown, and not in a good way. So he refuses to go in. He refuses to join in on the celebrations, and we can totally understand that, can't we? In many respects, the actions of the older brother make perfect sense. Imagine if this was your family and one of your siblings who treated your parents like trash, squandered the family wealth, wasted their lives, did some truly horrible things, shamed the family, shamed the community, and then one day shows up at home uh, asking for forgiveness and the father is acting like everything is okay. Like it's all been forgotten and forgiven. How would you feel? Would you feel like that's fair? Would you feel like that's justice? Would you feel like that's right? 
my guess is that you would say no. You say, that is not right. That is not fair. That is not just. How could you do that? And it would probably cause great division even further in your family. You'd be outraged. You see, for the scribes and the Pharisees, repentance means conformity to the rules. Repentance means conforming to the rules. It's doing what is right and working really hard to show that you mean it, okay? Working really hard to show that you mean it. You can come back to the fold, sure. You can come back to the family, sure, if and when you measure up. When you've paid for your mistakes, when you set things right, then you can come home. The horror here is that the younger son has been welcomed into the father's house before he has made things right. Where is the justice in that? How is that fair? For Jesus, however, repentance means something quite different to conforming to the rules. For Jesus, repentance means coming to your senses, realizing what you have done wrong. And then having a change of heart, having a change of mind. Repentance means realizing your sinfulness and unworthiness. Repentance means coming home and casting everything upon the grace and mercy of God. So the older son is angry, not because the younger son has returned, but because of the way that the father is responding to this. And the way the father is responding is shameful. The father is acting like a fool. You need to see this culturally at that time. The father is acting like an utter fool. He's dishonoring the name of the family and the name of God by not utterly rejecting his younger son. And in this moment, we are given a glimpse of what is going on in the older brother's heart. Jesus says the older son was not willing to go in, verse 28, or as another version puts it, the older son refused to go into the house. Now, you might think that's perfectly reasonable, but by doing this, he is deliberately now shaming his father publicly, just like the younger brother did, by the way. Now the older brother is publicly shaming his father. The younger brother did it by going out, going out of the family. The older brother is doing it by refusing to go in, refusing to go into the family. For in that culture, at that time, the oldest son would actually be expected to be a co-host with the father and to serve the honored guest. Now you know why he's not going in. No way. Like, dude, can you imagine? The old, how could the older brother debase himself by serving his shameful, worthless, loser, younger sibling? It would be too much. It's far too much for the older brother. But, and this is the gospel, friends, it is not too much for God. It's too much for the older brother, but it's not too much for the father. It's not too much for God. He's willing to serve those who don't deserve it. Jesus is highlighting here just how extravagant the grace of God really is. The God whom we have all sinned against now serves us with undeserved, lavish generosity. What did Jesus say? I did not come to be served, but to, to serve and to give my life, give my life, not just serve you with my stuff, but give you my life. 
everything I've got, I'm going to lay it down for you, undeserving sinners. Now, for us, we read that and we go, thank the Lord, praise God, but for the older brother types, this kind of grace is actually horrifying. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's, it can't be the way the world is. Can you put yourself in his shoes for a moment? How would you respond in this situation? So, further, if a son disagreed with his father in that culture, he was never to reveal that publicly, never, ever in front of others. You could speak to your father privately behind closed doors and address something you're concerned about. You never, ever shamed your father in front of other people. Never. And by staying outside, by refusing to go in, the older son has publicly taken a stand against his father. Publicly. Now, you might notice that this parable is unfinished. Did you notice that? The story doesn't resolve. The father goes out to plead with the son, but we don't know what the son will do in response. Well, we know exactly what the son does in response. Because in that culture at that time, for the father to have shamed himself so much and then the son to, act, to have acted in the way that he did, there, are only, there is really only one option left for that family. Well, two, the, either the older son had to leave or the older son would beat the father to death. Which path did the Pharisees and scribes choose? In any case, by refusing to go inside the house, the son has publicly dishonored his father and publicly rejected him. He might as well have walked up to him at the party and spat him in the face in front of all the guests. The younger son broke the father's heart when he said effectively, I hate you, I don't want to be here anymore, I wish you were dead, give me my share of the inheritance, I'm gone. The older son breaks the father's heart by saying, I hate you, I don't want you here anymore. I wish you were dead, I'm not coming in. He too breaks his father's heart. Remember, friends, Jesus tells this parable to reveal the heart of God. How does the Father respond to all this insulting behavior? How does the Father respond to his older son? What does the Father do for the second time that day? The Father goes out of the house in search of a lost son. And he does not go out to condemn or to punish, but to plead with his boy, to plead with him. Another shameful thing, fathers did not plead with their children in public. The father is willing to humiliate himself in front of all the guests, to take on all the insults of the older son, all the rejection, and he doesn't retaliate he goes out and he offers him mercy. He pleads with him to come to his senses and come home. And this is how Jesus depicts God. And how is God behaving in this story? He is pleading with his lost children to come to their senses and come home. Whether you're a younger son or an older son, there is a place for you at the Father's table, always. If only you will come to your senses and come home. 
And how does the older son respond to the pleading love of the father? By insulting his father even more. Listen to the, the heart of his son in his speech. What does he say? Look, all these years I have been serving you. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Look, he says, no title of respect, no father, no honorific. He just goes straight for the jugular. Look. You can hear the contempt dripping from his words. How angry he is. Uh, The scholar Ibrahim Saeed writes of this speech, here we see the older son is in fact no better than the prodigal son who took his portion and traveled off into a far country. The difference between them is that the prodigal son was an honorable sinner in that he was perfectly open with his father. He told his father all that was in his heart, but the older brother was a hypocritical sinner because he hid his feelings in his heart. He remained in the house all the while hating his father. And I've known so many Christians over the years who've stayed in the church, stayed serving God over years and years and years, but tragically, over time, because of the disappointments of life, they've started to lose their love for Him and their devotion has turned to duty and their love has turned to hate. They're still in the church, but they really, in their heart of hearts, hate God. but they won't be honest about it. At least the younger son is willing to be honest and say, Father, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I did the wrong thing. I have offended you. What does the older son say? Look, all these years I've been serving you, slaving for you, and you've given me nothing, nothing. See, the older son thinks his relationship with the father is about keeping the rules, doing his duty, being good. That's not the language of a son. That's the language of a slave. And that's how he truly feels. Friends, we are not called to be slaves of God, but children. God doesn't ask us to slave for him. In fact, what did Jesus say? It's mind-blowing stuff. I didn't, I don't call you, what, servants? call you my friends. I don't call you my servants. I call you my friends. What God mostly wants is not our service, but our hearts, our love. And when we love him, we'll serve him, of course. And service that flows out of love is a joy. It's life-giving. It's beautiful. It's productive. It's creative. It heals. But service that comes out of duty is destructive and burns us out and we end up feeling torn up on the inside, hating God and wondering whether we even still believe. How does the father respond to the son's speech? What does he say? He says, my son. And the word here is technon in Greek and it's a technical word. It doesn't just mean child, it means my beloved child, my boy, 
He's looking his son in the eyes, even after he's just been insulted by him. He looks him in the eyes and he says, with a broken heart, my boy, how did you come to this place? What has happened in your soul? My boy, all that I have is yours. You are always with me. Everything I have, everything that is mine is yours. How can you not know that? How have you missed that? Listen, friends, like the older brother, many of us may feel that our relationship with God depends on our performance. But again, that is the attitude of a slave, not a son or a daughter. That is not the heart of the father for us. What is Jesus telling us in this story? That our status in God's family does not depend on our performance. Can I say that to you again? Let this get into your soul. Your status in God's family does not depend on your performance. Do you believe that? Can I say it again? Your position, your place, your status in God's family does not depend on your performance. Otherwise, we'd be saved by our works, not by grace. And the tragedy is, of course, that if we become like older sons and daughters, then what we expect of ourselves, we start to expect of others as well. What happens to a person's heart when they become like an older brother is that they become hardened by judgment. They become hardened by judgment. That's the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. And we're told the older son is angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because he believes that he's lived such a good life that God owes him something that he's earned more than he has. But since life never goes the way that you want it to, life never works out the way we expect, if you think that you deserve a good life because you have earned it, you are always going to live with an undercurrent of anger and judgment in your soul. Always. And you will constantly compare yourself with other people all the time. And what you're trying to do is work out where you are on the scale of God's favor. Am I one of the good ones? Am I good enough? Am I better than them? You know, have I worked harder than them? Do I deserve something more than them? Why does their life look more blessed than mine when I've worked harder from their, than they have, obviously? Have you ever thought those kinds of things? Man, I have. I wrestle with it all the time. According to Jesus' definition, religion is the source of a tremendous amount of misery and strife, and all it will do is poison your heart and destroy your joy. And so you need to hear what the father says to his older son. You need to hear this this morning. My child, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. My child, my boy, my daughter, you are always with me. There will never be a day that you will live where you are not with the Father. Whether you've had a good day or a bad day, whether you've been a good boy or a bad boy, whether you've been a good girl or a bad girl, whether you've screwed up or managed to keep it together, you will always be with the Father. Do you believe that? Always. He will never abandon you or forsake you. He will never walk away from you. You will always be with the Father and everything he has is yours.
everything. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, and we say the amen. Amen. Now this is, I'm going to finish with this. What the the father says to his older son is literally true in another sense. The younger brother could only be brought back into the family at enormous cost and expense to the older brother. Think about it. Because if the, old, if the younger son has already received his inheritance and he squandered it all, then who has all that, that is left? The older brother. All the wealth of the family now belongs to him. It's his. It's his inheritance. And yet the father's welcoming back the younger son, which means he's going to have to divide his inheritance again. It's costing him something to welcome. Not only is it undeserved, but now it's costing the older brother something to bring the younger son back. It's literally going to cost him quite a lot. Salvation is not free. Somebody has to pay. And in this case, the elder brother has to pay, and he's furious about it. But what would a true elder brother have done? A true older brother would have seen the agony of his father. A loving older brother, a loving older son would have seen the agony of his father's heart and said to himself, I'm going to go out and look for my younger brother, even if he's ruined himself or he's squandered all his inheritance, I will bring him home even at my own cost. I'll go out and find him. I can see what it's doing to my father's heart. I'll go find my younger son, younger brother and bring him home. That's what a true, loving, older brother would have done. Which is why when we invite people into the discipleship journey, when we invite our younger siblings to the table, guess what? It costs us something. It's expensive to make disciples. It means we have to make room. It means we have to be inconvenienced. It means we have to go out and actually share our faith with people. It's hard to be an older brother and welcome our younger siblings in. You know what I'm saying? It costs us something, but it costs our true older brother even more. The younger son in this story doesn't have a true older brother, but we do. We do. Jesus Christ shows us a bad older brother, the religion of the scribes and Pharisees, so that we'll See a good one when it's shown to us, the right one. We don't just need an older brother to travel to another country, to sit us down and to tell us where we've gone wrong and lay down the law. That's what the Pharisees wanted Jesus to do, but he doesn't do that. Instead, our true older brother travels from heaven to earth and pays the penalty of our sins so that we can be saved. He doesn't just lay down the law, he gives his life for us. Are you with me? It costs him everything. And on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in a robe of honor that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus experienced being forsaken of the Father so that you and I could be united with him forever and never experience that kind of desolation. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt of what we had squandered, not just with money, but with his blood, so that we could now share in the inheritance of the Father and receive everything that the Father and the Son have had from everlasting to everlasting. It is now ours because of the price Jesus was willing to pay to bring us home. He had everything the Father had and he shares it with us. He has brought us home at enormous cost to himself. This is our true older brother. This is what a true older brother is meant to look like, an exact representation of the father. As Hebrews 1 says, the son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation 
of his being. In other words, as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. You know what the Father is like. And when you discover this, and when this gets into your heart, your whole motivation for serving God, your whole approach to God will change. You won't be into self-discovery or moral conformity. Guess what you will be? You will be a Christian. Uh, Final quote, in his classic book, The Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, and it's on the screen, Richard Lovelace writes this, that older brother syndrome is rampant in the church, and he says many professing Christians are drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a deep assurance that we are accepted, that we are loved, which we hold to by faith, not claiming our own righteousness, but only the righteousness of Christ. That is the basis of everything. That is the basis of everything. Let's pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Father, I thank you for the immensity of your love which has been expressed to us through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection which has set us free from the power of sin and death. And I thank you that in light of this incredible, immeasurable undescribable gift I pray that we would know how much we are loved and that our assurance and our status as your children doesn't depend on our performance but on your power on your grace on your love and I pray that that truth would change us forever from the inside out as that gets deep into our hearts, and I pray it will this morning, we would be able to recognize where we have slipped into older brother syndrome, older brother thinking, and take a moment to repent and ask again, Lord, that you'd break our hearts with the power of your goodness, because it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And I pray that we would feel your kindness in our bones today. In Jesus' name, amen.